Optimal minimal. At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can I ask you a personal question? Now we're the same in a broken time. What if I did the opposite? I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over a metal endoskeleton. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. I get asked all the time what I would take if I could only take one supplement. The answer is invariably Athletic Greens. I view it as all-in-one nutritional insurance. I recommended it, in fact, in the four-hour body. This is more than 10 years ago, and I did not get paid to do so. With approximately 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, you'd be very hard-pressed to find a more nutrient-dense and comprehensive formula on the market. It has multivitamins, multimineral greens complex, probiotics and prebiotics for gut health, an immunity formula, digestive enzymes, adaptogens, and much more. I usually take it once or twice a day just to make sure I've covered my bases if I miss anything I'm not aware of. Of course, I focus on nutrient-dense meals to begin with. That's the basis. But Athletic Greens makes it easy to get a lot of nutrition when whole foods aren't readily available. From travel packets, I always have them in my bag when I'm zipping around. Right now, Athletic Greens is giving my audience a special offer on top of their all-in-one formula, which is a free vitamin D supplement and five free travel packs with your first subscription purchase. Many of us are deficient in vitamin D. I found that true for myself, which is usually produced in our bodies from sun exposure. So adding a vitamin D supplement to your daily routine is a great option for additional immune support. Support your immunity, gut health, and energy by visiting athleticgreens.com TFS. You'll receive up to a year's supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your subscription. Again, that's athleticgreens.com TFS, as in Tim Ferriss show. athleticgreens.com TFS. <sighs> The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Hello, boys and girls. This is Tim Ferriss, and welcome to another episode of The Tim Ferriss Show. I'm sitting in a cabin surrounded by snow, and it is still my job every episode to deconstruct world-class performers of all different types, from entertainment to military, chess to jujitsu, you name it. I have tried to interview the best of the best in that world. And in this particular episode, we are going to talk about anti-aging. What does that mean? Well, there's a lot of hogwash, a lot of nonsense out there, but there are a few people who really stand out as particularly interesting because they walk the talk. Dr. Arthur Devaney is nearly 80 years old and totally ripped. I just spent a bunch of time with him, better known as Art Devaney, and you should check him out on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash art.devaney, D-E-V-A-N-Y. He was signed as a professional baseball player in his youth and later earned his PhD in economics at UCLA. He is most famous for his evolutionary fitness, that's the term you would use, approach to training and diet, and our conversation focuses a lot on the subtleties and details of that. During his time at UCLA, Art did many things, including creating mathematical and statistical models to precisely describe the motion picture market. Art is now Professor Emeritus of Economics of the University of California at Irvine and is a member of their acclaimed Institute for Mathematical Behavioral Sciences. 
So this guy is very analytical. He's very mathematical and very, very logical. And that is the water on the kettle, but I'm going to power through it because I'm going to have tea, but it's going to be after this intro is recorded. A lifelong student of metabolism and fitness, Art has lived as a paleo athlete for more than 30 years and is considered a patriarch of the paleo movement right up there with Lauren Cordain. He believes there's no such thing as healthy aging and that we can intervene to protect against the aging process. And in this episode, we talk about his daily schedule, workout routines, Nassim Taleb, why he never gets sick, that is why art never gets sick, and really dig into the details of a fascinating man. There's also one point where I doubt myself, which happens fairly often, and I mention myotatic reflex, and then I renege and say, I don't know what I'm talking about. So just to explain what I meant by that, here's the definition. The stretch reflex, also known as myotatic reflex, this is from Wikipedia, is a muscle contraction in response to stretching within the muscle. It is a monosynaptic reflex, which provides automatic regulation of skeletal muscle length. When a muscle lengthens, the muscle spindle is stretched and its nerve activity increases. That sounds like gobbledygook to a lot of you, but that is why I said myotatic reflex. It's, it's related to doing negative only or negative dominant workouts, which arc, uh, arc, <laughs> art subscribes to. All right, so there you have it. There's a lot of uh, dense stuff in here. We get into the weeds, which you guys love, but if you're having trouble grasping something, and it's getting very dense, just hold on and listen for a few more minutes and we'll get back into more familiar territory. We talk about everything from ice ages to economics to the philosophies of intermittent everything. We talk about the extreme events <laughs> and the economics thereof. It's a fascinating conversation, at least it was for me. So without further ado, as I always say, I'm going to go get my tea now. <laughs> Please enjoy this conversation with Art Devaney. Art, welcome to the show. Happy to be here, Tim. I am thrilled to meet you. I've heard so much about you from many people, including our mutual friend, Naval Ravikant. And we're sitting here, for those people listening, at my undisclosed mountain location. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Art was kind enough to meet me here. And here we are at the kitchen table. And I thought we would just start with how you connected with Naval, because I don't know the story. Oh, it started with my blog. He... He got in touch with me, and uh, I decided to give a seminar in uh, Las Vegas covering sort of the elements of my approach, and he and his brother Kamal attended, along with, with uh, John Durant sure, mm -hmm. and uh, Richard Nicolay, and then a whole bunch of other people who've gone on to fame and fortune in the paleo world. And you've kept in, in contact with Naval, or at least he is certainly very familiar with, with the blog. If we rewind the clock a little bit, how did you go? Well, actually, I'll take a step back. I was going to ask you how you went from economics to the evolutionary approach to everything. Uh, but bef before I go there, how did you get to economics? <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I loved economics. Uh, it's a study of, uh, decentralized mechanisms and uh, organizations and spontaneous order. I got into it because uh, I took an undergraduate class in comparative economic systems at UCLA. And I had a professor who was just profoundly inspiring in that class, George Murphy. I give him credit. He may, he may disclaim my credit, but uh, <laughs> he, uh, he was so eloquent uh, in talking about uh, Hayek and uh, 
Oh, God, Enrico Baroni and a whole bunch of other people who wrestled with central planning. It's a time when central planning was sweeping Europe and was being promoted even in the United States, the, the progressive movement at that time. They, they felt that centralized control, scientific management, top-down hierarchical control would be the, the sensible way to do it. In fact, I wrote a book about the inland waterways that criticized that approach and talked about how they actually messed up the floodplains and they thought there was a hundred year floodplain, but floods don't have mean statistics. They don't converge, they diverge. So the variance keeps growing with every new flood. What is that for people who don't have any familiar with, uh, familiarity with economics? What does that, what does that mean? Uh, if you could maybe elaborate on that. Well, the variance, of course, is a measure of the variation in the series. The series, if it has a mean, you know, most people think in terms of normal distributions. It has central tendencies and that the mean and variation are well described by those two parameters. Not true. The damage that's done by the worst rainstorm in a decade does 40% of all the damage that, that rainstorms do in that decade. This is... It's it's a it's an extreme event dominated series, just like the movies, and just like your life. People fail to realize you you know you don't get anywhere from the drip 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 of the incremental. You get there from some big event that changes your life, like your book probably changed sure. your life. Um, I don't know what changed my life. Lots of things have, um, but those are the moments that are the power moments in your life. And in fact, the whole notion of normal doesn't apply to a person's life. You don't, you don't get anywhere by incrementing in small increments. It's the extreme event, and you seize it, and you're poised. And if you remain poised, you can respond to that kind of significant event. For example, there's uh, this notion of algorithmic compressibility which is a computer science term that, that applies to uh, the ability to, to reduce your life to an algorithm. Can't do it. Can't do it. The novelty in your life is constantly progressing, and you should welcome the variance, seize the opportunities. Um, that, that was, that's the way I, I, I think of life, and it's the zen of evolutionary fitness. That, that's, how, <laughs> that's how life works out. So we're, we're going to spend the majority, I think, of our conversation on evolutionary fitness, and I have so many questions for you, but I want to start with an area I know even less about, which is Hollywood. Yeah. So what are some of the erroneous beliefs uh, or, uh, that, you, that you found in Hollywood or insights that, that uh, you've written about and, uh, and studied? Well, you know, it's an industry that, Nobody understands. Nobody's really written anything very sensible about the industry. The Supreme Court, for example, divorced the studios from the theaters. And uh, Justice Douglas was the guy who wrote the decision. The famous Paramount Antitrust Decrees it treated the industry as a monopoly because they looked at market shares, which if you measure at a particular point in time, Paramount will have so many dollars of the total revenue of the industry, Universal will have so many, and, and on down the line. Problem is that changes every week. So if you use a 
something like a Herfindahl index or a, me a measure of concentration, it's constantly varying. In fact, it has no mean. It's the second moment of, excuse me, but it's the second, it's the variance of the distribution of market shares, the Herfindahl index is, and it's infinite, doesn't exist. Uh, Malenvold wrote about this, and so did, uh, oh, who's the other guy who did, did fractals? Um, anyway, uh, it doesn't matter who the, oh. Was it Mandelbrot? Yeah, yeah, Mandelbrot. He, he, he coined the word fractal because it, uh, it's a situation where the, the variation is so extreme that the distribution itself doesn't have the normal kinds of, lif of limits. It's a so-called wild distribution, as Nassim Taleb calls them. Mm -hmm. And these wild distributions don't have finite moments necessarily. The mean invariance may not exist, such as in the flood uh, example, and that's true also in the movies. Turned out that the movies has such a wild distribution that even the mean doesn't exist. So if you talk about the average gross, you're talking about no movie that ever made that. What <laughs> <laughs> well, reminds me of uh, there was some type of joke that was meant to illustrate the flaw in uh, how people misapply arithmetic re uh, mean. And it was uh, you know Bill Gates walks into a bar and suddenly. The, the average net worth is $50 million or something like that. Uh, Bill, Bill Gates walks into a bar and everybody's a millionaire on average. <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. Uh, so, yeah. so does this make movies impossible to predict or plan for? How would you build that in? If you ran a studio, how would that inform uh, what, what you've learned? How would that inform decisions that you make? Well, you, you've got to have a story and characters the audience will love. As, remember, uh, Callie Curry. She invited me to come speak to this screen actor, the, the screenwriters guild, and she said, "You make a movie by you make the audience love the characters, and then you torture them. <laughs> <laughs> torture the characters. Yeah, torture, I guess, and vis-a-vis and -vis the characters, the audience. <laughs> tor torture the characters, right? So the idea is that you a great script, a great story, memorable characters." then the rest is up to the, to the audience. It may or may not work. Um, an actor has uh, the same kind of variance in his career grosses as does the industry in general. So the, an actor will make one movie, and that movie will earn 40% of the actor's career revenues. Same thing with directors. If you, if you did all the regressions in the world, there's a statistical technique for trying to predict what a movie's going to make, you would find out that a handful of actors have any significance, and they're sort of flukes anyway. Like Val Kilmer, Kilmer, Kilmer came up in the, in the regression equations. He's gone now. I mean, it's, it's not that the past doesn't predict the future is really the way to look at it. And there's no algorithm to, to, to determine how a movie's going to gross. Genre is somewhat helpful, but only because People look at genre. Genre is not a category. It's something that people put. It's a box people put put movies in. If you really want to know how much a movie's going to make, you have to um, look at how many theaters they open it on. It's the cereal box effect. If you go into a grocery store and Wheaties gets all the shelf space except for a few sure. <laughs> inches, it's going to have the highest gross. Mm -hmm. It, it might disappear very quickly, though. 
because a, a big opening is a, is a dangerous strategy. It, it tends to give you dominant revenues in the early weeks, and if people follow the revenues as a means of making a decision how to go, which movie to go to, mm-hmm. that would tend to propel an, an, a, a dynamic where you would have an expansive gross. Problem is, you also have word of mouth and reviews. So it's a, it's a mixture of public and private information, private information being what your friends tell you about it, public information being reading the box office scores. You put those two together and you just have an enormously complicated dynamics. You, you can't tell how it's going to do. As a, as a matter of fact, if, if you don't get the grosses and you have 4,000 theaters committed their screens to your movie, you may have to allow them to double bill in the second week. That is add another feature to it. Oh, I see. If you see a movie that's double building by the third week, it's a stinker. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and um, yeah, I would I would imagine it's similar to books too. I mean, I suppose in any hits driven business, there are some people who try to front load with distribution, so they have this huge initial upfront cost yes. in the hopes that it will make the list somewhere at the top and then become a a self fulfilling cycle of sorts where Precisely. people use it as a, it's a same, shopping it's list. It's the same kind of thing. And uh, actually, a lot of authors will go out and buy lots of copies of their book. Oh, yeah. I know <laughs> I know of people who've bought, you know, I, I remember I visited, I shall not name names, but I went to the the office, the headquarters of a CEO who had recently published his own book, mm-hmm. or I should say had his book published, which he did not write. And there were tens of thousands of copies lining the walls. <laughs> it was just outrageous. <laughs> you could yeah. have built an entire structure out of these books. Well, the, the public has to, they, they're smart. They've learned that if, if you just look at the sales itself, that's what a lot of other people are doing. But it could be that they're, they're manipulating the sales as a way of signaling to you mm-hmm. that it's a, it's a great book. So you you look at reviews and you see what the author's done before. Mm-hmm. It might work if you're Tom Hanks in a movie, but then again, it could be he's had he has huge variance in his grosses. Also, he's not a sure thing. Yeah. What a star will do is it will raise the least revenue a film might earn. I see. It raises the the the, the minimum revenue. It'll, the minimum because it gets it out on a, a fair number of screens, and some people will come. But then word of mouth starts to take over, and it it can it can tank in no time. So you developed these these mental models, this analytical these analytical frameworks. How did fitness and diet enter the scene for you, and or how how, how did that how did you start focusing on that? It really began the other way around. I always wanted to be fit and strong and have a beautiful body and you know, healthy-looking skin and so forth. It's just like people liking me and looking at me. So ego helps a lot <laughs> in, in this game. Yeah. But I also was interested in, in fitness and, and eating well most of my life. However, that me- that blended with that plus my interest in athletics, and I wanted to be a pro baseball player. Eyesight let me down. <laughs> um, so those that that mixture led me to appreciate the hunter gatherer kind of lifestyle. The, the, that is, if you if you view uncertainty in the world the way I do, 
and you realize that we came through a narrow bottleneck, only 2,500 or so humans made it through the Toba, the post-Toba volcanic eruption, a volcanic winter, that was the lowest temperature in the, in the last 20,000 years was, was post-Toba. And so we came through a bottleneck like that. You realize that we have to be extremely hardy, very robust. You had to be poised. The brain is there in order to adapt to the climate variations that the humans went through. There were, there were 20,000 years of uh, extreme climate variation. And a good brain is a good way to get, get through that sort of thing. You can imagine God's designers, human designers, saying, well, we've got a new kind of, we got a new model now. It's different from the archaic model in the sense it has a very large brain. It's smart as hell, but it's kind of fat and slow. <laughs> <laughs> And God just says, well, let's see if it gets through the Ice Ages. I have 20,000 years of Ice Ages plans ahead of it. And that's what happened. The archaic form didn't last. And they, all the other closely related forms of, uh, of human beings disappeared at this time. The Neanderthal, the, the, uh, the Homo Heidelbergus, and uh, a, whole, a host of other. Even Homo... Um, Homo erectus was still around early on in this period, 200,000 years ago. So they all disappeared, and they all disappeared because you didn't have the adaptive behavior that, uh, that modern humans have. That, that brain was the survival instrument. That means that uh, we're here, we have a great brain simply because it, it's a way of adapting to the challenges that the world presents to us. And you couldn't have the brain that we have unless you had a body as well. The brain body, the brain muscle sig signaling is, dominates most of my thinking. Uh, so a fit, uh, an approach to fitness, it, uh, well, think of the sea squirt. I'll admit, I don't know much about sea squirts. Uh, and the sea squirt's a little polyp that lives in the sea, and it floats around, finds a location, latches onto that barcalonger, and eats its brain. Eats its own brain. Eats its own brain. <laughs> because it's found its place. It no longer needs to navigate the world. And the brain is dispensable. And every bit of protein and substrate that's, that an animal can get, get a hold of, of course, it's going to eat. So at that point, the sea squirt consumes its brain. A lot of people do that too, don't they? Yeah. I was going to say, I think a lot of that's happening right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Settling into a couch, you lose your, you lose your muscle. Your brain begins to degenerate because it's not getting the, the signals that the muscles... Muscles release all kinds of so-called myokines now that have been discovered. And it also, a remote signal from the muscle can cause your brain to improve its cell quality. To maintain neurons, one thing you can do is to contract muscles and you'll find you improve what's called proteostasis in the, in the neurons. Proteostasis is maintaining the cellular quality, not having misfolded proteins, misshapen proteins, wrong kind of proteins in your... Is in that your, related to uh, like a brain-derived neurotrophic factor or things like that, or is it a it different also mechanism? Does, it also does that. But see, neurotrophic factors are typically growth-type factors that rescue a, a, a stressed cell, mm -hmm. and, and that does happen. But the other part of it is that you need to alter insulin signaling 
so that you're actually bring on the defensive pathways in that neuron as opposed to the growth to the, right the growth factors and the signal uh, growth signaling so that would bring on the foxo and sirtuins and other factors in the in the neuron so that kind of signaling and if you if you affect proteostasis in the brain the brain then can send neural signals to affect proteostasis in remote tissues now we're into this notion of remote signaling or signaling at a distance which is systemic signaling economists love that kind of uh, you know the kind of uh, model that an adaptive kind of decentralized behavior and what uh what types of if if we're looking at so for instance i was listening to one of your presentations and on one of the, on one of the slides i just wrote down two lines and it was it reads aging is not programmed it is the result of the failure of a renewal program right and so i would love to hear you a elaborate on that maybe a little bit and then yeah. b uh follow that through with the the implications in terms of behaviors that mm-hmm. might help or diet, anything that might help yeah. to uh, bolster that renewal yeah. system. Yeah. Well, you know, aging is really uh, a puzzle. I only started studying it a few years ago, and I figured, well, I'm an expert because I'm experienced. <laughs> I was about 78 years old when I started looking at, at aging. And I, I thought... It really is a lot simpler than people are making it out to be. It is not programmed. There are, there's no, no aging genes have been discovered. The only dis- genes that have been discovered to have any bearing on aging are defensive pathways. Foxosirtuins, uh, proteostasis, a host of other defensive Im- immunity, stem cell proliferation. There are four or five pathways that are involved in aging and in the main, they are regenerative or defensive pathways, like like immunity. The the immune pathways cross over with your uh, uh, cell maintenance uh, d- defensive pathways. For example, autophagy is used in both processes. Autophagy being the the consumption of self tissues of, of own tissues. Phagy being eating and right. auto being you, your own tissues. So autophagy is both an element of the immune system. It's also an element of keeping the stem cells alive and healthy because they're living on autophagy. And when they, when they need to proliferate and come out and heal wounded tissues, they go through a burst of autophagy and then they transition into, into oxidative phosphorylation. They use oxidative pathways after that. They're in there being defended by autophagy so that the, the mitochondria don't damage the stem cells. They have to live in a low oxygen niche. In fact, they're very similar to a very primitive form of cell. Uh, it, they live on basically um, glycolysis. And uh, th- that was how all life lived at one time. And your fast twitch muscle fibers also used the most primitive kind of um, energy sources for uh, for movement so the defensive pathways are really the key to it all and and the appearance the poets know this uh, the legend of tithonus 
is a legend of the Greek god. Aurora was, he was Aurora's boyfriend and Zeus didn't like it. So Aurora pleaded with him, with, with Zeus not to kill him. So Zeus in his clever way said, well, okay, you're going to live forever. But he didn't. He forgot to say, I'm not going to let you age. So Tithonus wastes away for eternity. It's a, it's a cruel punishment, but it's a correct description of what the aging process is. It's a loss of cell function, loss of cell integrity, a loss of the ability of stem cells to renew tissues. So aging basically is simply damage. What are some of the interventions that, uh, that you find most interesting at this point? I eat only twice a day, so I, long, I want long intervals between meals. I want low insulin signaling so that I bring on the defensive and repair pathways. I want to be conscious of maintaining my stem cells. Now, how do you maintain your stem cells? Well, first of all, you don't have too much mitochondrial density down in your stem cells. So, I, yeah, I really want to talk about this. Okay. <laughs> mitochondrial you, density is all the rage. All right. I mean, it seems, it, like, it, it seems to be all the rage, isn't it? And yeah. like they're innocent little batteries that just sacrifice and produce energy for you. Remember, they have their own, their own DNA. So, mitochondrial density has to be very low in the stem cell niches. Moreover, the mitochondrial activity level. For example, humans, people don't know this, humans have the lowest mitochondrial density of any mammal. Really? Yes. And they also have low, low reactive type of mitochondria, the L3. We all came off out of the L3 mitochondrial haplotype that left Africa. Remember, mitochondria Eve occurred about 160, 138,000 years ago. By that time, humans were huddled on the seashore of South Africa trying to survive. The the temperature was so cold and so much ice was locked up moisture that the Sahara expanded in scope and became very arid. So after, after Toba a volcanic eruption, the largest volcanic eruption in the last two million years, humans were basically settled along the, the southern and eastern shore of, uh, of Africa huddled there to survive. And, and Curtis Marion thinks that uh, the, I, the seashore saved humanity. The, uh, the accessibility of, of, uh, of sea, seafood along the, the shore. Vegetables were wiped out for about a thousand years. Or, or not, there was a thousand year volcanic winter and vegetables were diff difficult to come by and the inland sources of animals were were sparse as well. It turns out we may have survived on corms. They're a starchy plant that is in the biome of South Southern Africa. Corbs? Corms. Huh. C-O-R-M-S. Ah, yes. I've seen Corms. this written. Yes. Corms. Mm -hmm. It's a carbohydrate containing, I, I hate to tell the paleo guys this, but <laughs> <laughs> between the mussels and the, and the washed up seals and an occasional beached whale and the seabirds and occasional inland hunting, um, that, that was basically how we survived. Mussels, mussels are your friend and, and both, both kinds of mussels. <laughs> so, so there's the survival aspect. The DHA, of course, in the seafood became a substrate for the, for the brain. 
And you can see the remarkable photos that show the difference between it's a hundred thousand dif years difference in the in the human skull. It's a profound difference. You can see that the human skull, the modern human skull that emerged, is kind of a a juvenileized version of the earlier skull. And um, the high prefrontal area, the cortex, and what have you. So brain expansion clearly occurred in response to two things, the availability of nu nutrition to help propel brain growth, the need to have high brain cognitive power to survive the ice ages, plus the growing settlement size on the seashore because we now had a stable source of of food, we, I'm thinking of us, you know, coming from that period. And that, that spurred technology, and remember, language developed at this time, too. So it was an enormous change in human behavior during this time period. And so we were talking about the interventions. You mentioned eating two times a day, and we'll, we'll come back to this, I think, but is that generally breakfast, dinner, lunch, dinner? What's the, what does your split look like? Well, whatever suits you, but I do lunch, uh, I do I do breakfast dinner because I want a long interval between meals mm -hmm. to promote proteostasis. I want I want to clear the enzymes. I want to remember you've got there are about a billion proteins in a in a cell, according to Dylan's group up at Berkeley. Oh, Berkeley, <laughs> 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 and uh, it's very critical to. The, the the degradation of the proteins is sort of a continuous process, but the transcription and making new proteins is is an interval based kind of thing. It depends on when the nutrient signals are there, when 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 mTOR begins to say, "Okay, don't consume proteins, make new ones, transcribe and translate." Although when you transcribe and translate, you you find that that moves up a diagonal that the the atrophy process follows it. Because you've got to keep some kind of balance there. If you over, my theory is this: that we 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 had to overeat in order to survive. We don't live on energy balance. And if you look at this as a random world, you can't survive unless you overeat during periods when food is available, so as to store nutrients for the times of scarcity. We also overproliferate. That is, when nutrients are available, the transcription and translation process turns on in a sort of a burst. Has to be because otherwise you won't make enough proteins to survive. Your cells won't, won't won't be durable. That is what's killing us today because we're over transcribing, we're overeating, we're making too many proteins. They get misfolded, they get damaged. They don't. There's no room for them. This, the architecture of the cell is stretched. The actin filaments are stretched out, and there's stress signaling going on. And you don't transcribe accurately. You don't make good proteins when you're under stress. We also talked then about the low mitochondrial density near stem cell niches, I guess you said? Is yes, right? they reside in a low oxygen niche. So how do, you, uh, how do you proactively encourage low mitochondrial density in those areas? You do weightlifting. Mm-hmm. You stay off the treadmill. <laughs> Actually, if, if you sprint, you can use up, you can consume mitochondria because you, you improve mitochondrial dent, uh, quality. I got it. So they become more sort of effective and efficient so they don't need, you don't need the density. That's right. 
That's right. And, and they are not as, they don't rely as much on oxidation either. You're using the glycolytic pathway, which goes through the mitochondria anyway, but the, in the Krebs cycle and so forth, but it's not, it's not producing lots of free radicals. So are you responsible for getting uh, Nassim Taleb deadlifting? Is that <laughs> my fault? <laughs> well, you remember the story about Nassim. I, if you if you read the back section of um, the little section he wrote for my book, because he here he was a, a, a kurtosis trader. That is, he he used distributions with wild characteristics. And he was he was buying out of the money calls and puts, mm-hmm. and so, not, and living on the variance. <laughs> Right, he was a I were living in the options world. Yes, that's right. And so here he was doing just steady state exercise. And I said, "What, what, what are you doing? This is the wrong approach." Just, I just, just so I know because I. And uh, how did you first? How did the two of you connect? I used his book in uh, a class I taught. Uh, Fool by randomness. I used in a in a class I taught on the economics of uh, uncertainty. I told him, uh, I, I communicated with him. I said, I'm using your book. I don't know why I wrote him, but I, I, because I hate textbooks. <laughs> and that really connected with him. He said uh, he hates textbooks too. You really, <laughs> yeah, you, you really hit a, a, a sore spot. You yeah. get, uh, get him started on ac- academia. So, so, so you connected with him, and then he was doing steady state exercise. He was he was doing his you know three sets of twelve and so many hours on the tre- treadmill or the the cycling or whatever, and he figured out that in cycling to and from his office that's when he his office was some distance from his gym. He said he figured out that the maximum expenditure of energy in that ride was what did him the most good, mm-hmm. and that's that's your approach too. That's four hours. For example, in, in an organization, the, media, the, the half the work is done by um, the square root of N workers. So you've got 100 people in there, 10 workers produce half the output. Sure. Which, yeah. which, I mean, this, this is, we're on the same page with this in terms of Pareto distribution. Yeah. And- right. And this is, this is just all the prices uh, work, and Latka and others have looked at scientific publishing, publishing what have you. Uh, the Pope is his own own version of this, by the way. Pope John Pope John Paul before uh, before he passed away, he was asked how many people work at the Vatican. He said about half of them. <laughs> 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 and, and of course, Robert Evans says the same thing about Hollywood. You know, the, Hollywood's a place where half the people are not working, and it's true that between films and they're hoping for the next one, so forth. even Dustin Hoffman is great. He said, "I have to be grateful to be working." Uh, this goes with the business. Uh, in the industry, there are these power law distributed networks, and a few people are at the central hubs. And so, uh, so the same rule really holds for the movie industry. Probably half the people do about ten percent of the people do about half the half the movies, or something like that. And so Nassim thought that the 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 calorie expenditure during his bike ride was what was giving him the most bang for the buck. Can you imagine the people with that? Dumb back in those days, and there's still people around who think that uh, it's an energy balance model. I don't know how. Well, let's face it; they all studied steady state exercise because you have put someone on the treadmill and you measured his oxygen expenditure. Nobody 
had any idea. Non-steady state exercise is very difficult to quantify and to measure. Now they're getting better at it, they're much better at it. The power of law holds again because the most intense exercise, the most intense expenditures to um, the bulk. You put accelerometers on children. The leanest are the ones who engage in the most intense bursts. They, little little children don't steady state exercise. <laughs> so what does your exercise regimen look like or what you would prescribe to someone like a Nassim or anyone really? Well, I told Nassim to start doing negative deadlifts if he wants to improve his deadlifts. Mm-hmm. Have, have somebody help you put the bar up, lower it, mm-hmm. pick, pick a height, and then put it up again and lower it again and put it up. Lord, again, I do. I do almost all negatives now. Why, Zach? You talk about why? Why? Why are eccentrics? Well, so important. I'm doing eccentrics for really three reasons. Uh, the, the main one being that they double your stem cell counts in the in the, the satellite cells in the muscle. Now they double them, but it, they don't exhaust them. A lot of people, if you double the, the the stem cells that flood out, you may exhaust them because you may. Simply exhaust the ones in the niche. What you want to do is you want to double them and have one go back into the niche and one go out and, and heal tissues. Asymmetric differentiation is what you want. If they symmetrically differentiate, they both become n- new possible progenitors to cells. You're now exhausting. Put one, take one out, put one in. It is the best way to do it, and eccentric exercise does that. Downhill running does too. Downhill running. Downhill right. running. How do you in, uh, so I'd, I'd love to hear what a, a, a negative focused workout of yours might look like. And if you could also just talk about mitigating injury risk, yeah. uh, because th- there are a lot of people who get in, for instance, there are a lot of sprinters who in their training will only do the positive on deadlifts and drop them for fear of hamstring injuries. So, so not to say it can't be done safely because I, I've done a lot of negatives, but I'd love to hear what a workout of yours looks like. It's so mild you wouldn't believe it. I work out almost every day, okay, maybe 10, 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. And uh, sometimes it's hard to do a negative if you don't have a training partner, but I use equipment and I'll use, uh, like, for example, leg extensions. Push up with two, lower with one. Yeah, yeah, typical. Leg press, push up with two, lower with one. Um, shoulder presses, push up with two. Actually, I, I use I use a machine, in, in, in this case, you know, like the power hammer and stuff. I'll push it up with two hands and then lower it with one. Mm-hmm. And, and deltoids are all fast twitch, all, mostly fast twitch fibers, so they really respond well, well to that. Um, what body, just since you mentioned it, which muscle groups respond best to this type of training? All of them. All of them. But okay. postural muscles, you, they're slow twitch fibers. You need to, they need to have endurance. Mm-hmm. Keep your posture locked in. And so, so I end every workout standing against the wall. Now, this was the thing that Naval liked most about my seminar. Stand against the wall. You know, get 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 a little slot in the small of your back. Put your heels and butt against the wall. Your shoulders back, your head back. Walk off and leave. Look over your cheekbones. Don't look. Don't drop your head and start looking down. Your whole spine collapses. 
So look straight ahead. Well, you, if you need to look down, just look down over your cheekbones. Don't drop, don't drop your head. You, you descend your head and the rest of your So this is to establish proper posture? It is to establish proper posture, but also to maintain it and to have a sort of the nobility of having good posture. It really makes a difference in your mental attitude. Are you working your entire body every uh, your your entire body every day? No, I'm not because I may want to. I might do legs in shoulders one day, and I might do I almost never do curls because they're, they're just ego muscles anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I would just go around and do a variety of uh, exercises. I make sure to hit every body group a couple times a week, and I'm cycling through, and uh, I do a lot of lat. And uh, lower back and leg work and uh, shoulder work. When you, so you said 10 to 15 minutes, how do you choose? Let's just take an example in the shoulder press. Uh, how are you determining what weight to use? Is it a percentage of, say, one rep concentric? Uh, and then what is the, the tempo number of repetitions? If you could just give, give us an idea of, of the programming of that. <laughs> I'm such an instinctive trainer, trainer like Arnold is. Yeah. Um, I might, I just don't have a, a yeah. regular way. I just do it. Okay. <laughs> do you go to the point where you start to lose the ability to control the descent? Or when do you terminate yes, it? I do. I have some sense of fatigue. But I, what I do is I push it up really fast and quickly in a very precise form, but very lots of acceleration and then uh, coming down really slow. And to a full good stretch, you have to... You remember you have this giant protein in your muscles, this Titan protein. It's the stress sensor. And stress, by the way, will stimulate mTOR and protein synthesis. The stretch. Yes. That's the, is that, I might be getting this wrong, myotatic reflex? Am I getting that wrong? Something like, I don't know what I'm talking about. Please continue. Yeah. I wanna... Okay. Well, there's a signaling domain down in the, mm -hmm. and the, uh, the, the Titan protein passes, it, it sets the architecture of the whole muscle really and that and the actin there's a there's a cytoskeleton a skeleton in the muscle itself of these actin fibers and they, if they're stretched and sent if they sense stretching you you get the dystrophin protein the senses the the distortion of the um, of the enclosure of the muscle and then the titan senses the extension of the muscle that means you want to really go for, to a full stretch, if you actually if you did curls and never fully stretched, you would you'd have a little tiny muscle. You've got to stretch the muscle out. And Goldberg's work and all that, all kinds of work on muscle shows that full extension you lengthen the muscle too. A, a lengthened muscle is stronger and fuller when it's contracted, and it's faster. So I go. I want my muscles to be not too big, lean long and quick mm -hmm. what uh from a, just an evolutionary standpoint what would have mimicked the eccentrics aside from downhill running well actually any kind of running does it mm -hmm. as, as you know because every impact is eccentric right uh stress any kind of lowering of mm -hmm. course you, yeah. you had to lift and lower things you, mm -hmm. you have, I, I suppose carry, even carrying is a certain degree of uh, eccentric exercise. But I only, uh, see, this is, this is Stone Age plus high tech. Right. 
And the high-tech part of it is I uh, looked at Macaluso's work on stem cell um, activation. And there's other work on it as well. I, I wanted efficient, time-efficient time exercise to keep me injury-free. And injury-free is really very important. I've had almost no injuries in, in the gym. Over 60 years of using, using gyms, I can think of one, one, one injury. So you're efficient, injury-free. The fast-twitch type of fibers are the, the ones you're hitting when you do descending. And when you get older, your motor neurons aren't as effective. So you want to have the kind of heavy stimulation of the fast-twitch fibers. They're the ones that have the biggest motor neurons. And the way to do that is negatives. It's very safe, very effective. Of course, you can't do negatives on everything because, you know, it's awkward and uh, right. what have you. So you can, you can at least concentrate on accelerating smoothly and rapidly up and then descending slowly. Mm -hmm. I mean, Doug McGuff likes this sort of stuff. And uh, probably the best thing about his exercise is the slow descent. Yeah. Yeah. But I would never work out hard enough where I have to rest a whole week. I do something every day. What's the uh, what's the rationale behind behind that as opposed to having longer rest intervals? Okay, well, I want a renewal signal every day. Mm -hmm. The renewal signal is one: it's it's the fasting before exercise. Then the fasted. When do you work out typically? When do you do this? Fifteen minutes. I probably over... work out at eleven o'clock in the morning, typically. So if you, uh, got it. So yeah, I'll get up at like seven or six and I'll have a, a mild breakfast at like eight. What would be what would be some of your default breakfasts? Well, my favorite default of breakfast is a giant smoked turkey lake <laughs> <laughs> with, a, with a bit of melon. Uh, they're, they're very inexpensive and they're fun to eat. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds fantastic. I wish I had some of that here. Unfortunately, I do not. You've got two, two big turkey legs in a package at, uh, at Walmart even. And uh, I one one turkey leg and maybe half uh, a third of a melon. Got it. And then uh, I will work out at 11. I'll have a 15, 20 minute workout because I like to go around and see if there are any girls there to look at too <laughs> while I'm there. And uh, I won't eat until four hours after. I'll eat like at five o'clock. Got it. So that's your, that's your evening meal and then you don't eat between five and when do you typically go to sleep? I might go to bed at 11. Okay. All right. No, but so, you, so you'd, you'd finish your last meal by say six o'clock and yeah. then have four or five hours of, of fasting before bed. That's correct. Got it. And okay. then All right, got uh, it. I won't eat till, you know, maybe even lunch the next day. It just depends. Mm -hmm. Got it. I'm just I, I never have three meals a day. I sometimes have um, uh, one, mm -hmm. sometimes none, most times two. Mm -hmm. But you don't have to cut calories. It's just the timing. It's the right. intervals between meals where you have low insulin sense signaling. High autophagy and proteostasis uh, mechanisms like the proteasome is eating up enzymes and you're clearing the damage. Your, your autophagy peaks at about four hours after, four to six hours uh, after um, exercise. All these guys who, who guzzle right after, the, after their workout, they're killing. They're killing their adaptive process. You can't have, without a, a proper autophagy, your muscles degenerate. You have to clear the old damaged proteins. 
and that's how you do it. The, the proteasome is that little core-shaped barrel-shaped object in the in the cell that that consumes mostly enzymes that have done their job, mm-hmm. clears enzymes. If if you have enzymes to stay there too long, or 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 neural factors of some kind like like uh, stress hormones. You have to eat those up. The, the, the whole thing is dynamic protein generation and clearance. So what I'm doing is um, I'm working out, I'm stimulating the uh, autophagy process and the proteostasis, proteostasis is protein quality maintenance process. So by four, four hours later, that's, that's peaked, it's over, and I'm good and hungry. Mm-hmm. I have a nice big meal. What does dinner look like? What would be an example of a of a dinner that you enjoy? My wife hands me something. Usually, it's uh, I used to do all my own cooking when when after my first wife passed away, but uh, now she's such a great cook. I have a big mound of uh, spinach with lots of garlic in it, and uh, there may be uh, she makes a lot of pot roast her own way though. It's more an Italian way. Um, of course, a fair amount of steak. I'll have an occasional prime rib, but I always cut the excess fat off. I don't like fatty meats. Is that just a personal preference, or is there a, uh, a sort of uh, is there a scientific reason behind it, or just palate? It's both. It's both personal. I, I trust my taste, mm-hmm. and if if something is just like oh, this is too much of this, uh, I back off it. The other part of it is if uh, if you want to have a fatty liver, you eat a lot of fat. I, there's no way around it. Got it. Yeah. You know, you oxidize energy sources according to how easy they are to oxidize. So first carbohydrate goes, then maybe protein or fat, but fat still has to go. So it has to go somewhere. And excess adipose tissue is one of the worst things you can do. Our body composition is so crucial. And if you get if your liver starts filling up with fat, this is fat where it shouldn't be. This is like ectopic fat. Then, it build, then it's also building up in your bone marrow, in your muscle, in your thymus, you know, in your brain. Uh, so fatty degeneration is uh, a source of stem cell disdifferentiation. A stem cell will come wandering out and say, I'm going to fix this muscle. But it encounters a whole lot of fat in the muscle. So it differentiates into an adipocyte instead of a muscle cell. Remember, these stem cells are very plastic. They can take on a fate depending on the tissue they, they arrive to and what signals they receive They're local. It's local as well as the global signals that are causing that. See, bodybuilders always knew it was volume that built mass. I think this is really generally true. You lots and lots of volume, even two workouts a day, they used to I, I was around a lot of these guys. Sure. I get the volume in a different way. I work out every day, but maybe 20 minutes at the most. Right? I, I do take one day. I don't work out at all. What do some people in the, the paleo movement get wrong? What do you think are the most common errors or logical fallacies or, or uh, damaging fads or trends that you observe in people who self-identify as paleo? Very interesting. Uh, because there are, there are a lot of little tribes inside. The <laughs> oh, sure, a lot of factions. <laughs> and I don't, frankly, I don't keep tra- track of these guys. There's just too many people trying to say too many things. <laughs> they eat too much fat. Mm-hmm. 
absolutely true. They, a lot of them went off wild, wildly into, the, into fat consumption. So they probably have fatty livers by now. I really, I mean, it's, you cannot eat large amounts of fat and not have a fatty liver. You can't, look at the energy. Who needs all the energy? They're trying to, they're worried about energy balance. I don't get worried about energy yeah. balance, do you? They, uh, they, they, they think there are particular kinds of foods they have to eat. But really, variety and flavor, mm-hmm. texture, color that's that's how you choose your meals what are your thoughts on i i i love your facebook page by the way i do have questions about why you got rid of your blog but i your facebook has more sort of information density than i've seen on almost any other facebook page and uh what are your thoughts on coconut oil and coconut products I wouldn't do it. <laughs> you wouldn't do it. <laughs> now, does that come back to the fatty liver and just a percentage of your total intake is, is fat? Well, first of all, it's, it's an evolutionary non sequitur. It doesn't follow. You, know, you would not be seeing large amounts of coconut consumption in uh, the Paleolithic. So it, that, it, it's just odd, mm-hmm. first of all. And it's kind of a fad. Second of all, and there, who knows of the manufacturers of these things? There are all kinds of impurities uh, that are involved. Um, it doesn't taste good either. I don't. You, you got, I'll, I'll confess, I'm pretty sick of coconut. The taste of coconut meat has got so much fat in it already. Why would you ever need to have any additional source of, of fat? So, and even the olive oil, I'm uh, sparing with. Do you cook eggs or do you consume eggs? Sure, you do. How do you prepare your eggs? Fried, boiled, scrambled. So if you if you fry them, what are you using to fry in? Or scrambled? What uh, are you using? A small amount of olive oil? Are you using butter? Are you using a small amount of olive oil and at a moderate temperature? And I don't know. Actually, I haven't seen my wife cooking the eggs lately. I don't know how she does. It. <laughs> <laughs> oil free would be perfectly fine with me if you had a, a, a pan that you know these one of these ceramic pans that uh, where things slide off. Mm-hmm. She never burns an egg either. They're always uh, wonderfully done. I used to throw a yolk away when I'd eat four boiled eggs, you know. Would, uh, do you, would you still do that if you were consuming eggs? I find the yolk a bit odd in, in taste, and I don't like too much yolk. But I, <laughs> I, but I don't throw, but I get tired of eggs. I'm very tired very quickly. Got it. Yeah, I found, uh, I, I love eggs, but I, I only recently discovered a few years ago, uh, and it's so simple, that how to make proper soft boiled eggs so you have a nice delicious yolk as opposed to the yellow golf ball of the hard boiled <laughs> which is just so uh-huh. chalky and unpleasant yes um, yes eggs are, <laughs> so, so let's talk a little bit about you mentioned the, the consumption of uh, say post-workout carbohydrates and amino acids or whatever it might be uh love to chat a little bit about mTOR so this is yeah. Yeah. This is a big subject, and uh, a lot of people are trying to uh, minimize mTOR activation in the in the hope of extending lifespan and health span. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, so I'd love, in general, to hear your thoughts on on that, where people are say doing everything they can to minimize activation of mTOR. They're trying to remove L-leucine. They're trying to get their IGF one as low as possible. Uh, 
so thoughts in general on mTOR and then also on the use of, say, rapamycin or metformin? Well, look, when overproliferation or hyperproliferation is considered to be one of the evils of modern world, but it was a necessary adaptation in, in the past. You couldn't have survived if you didn't proliferate rapidly in the presence of food because you wouldn't have another chance later on. You had to be very effective at doing that. But there would have been, in the evolutionary times, there would have been a protein quality control process following that because you've had a fairly long interval without food. So overdriving mTOR was never a problem. They're talking in the modern world about people who never shut mTOR off. Mm -hmm. Basically, you don't have these intervals between meals and you're overdriving mTOR, so you're creating lots of misfolded proteins, proteostasis is collapsing. The first thing a C. elegans does when it starts to die is its proteostasis collapses. C. elegans, this is uh, our, our, our favorite worm. Yes. For, for lab yes. studies. Uh-huh. So you don't want your proteostasis to collapse. It's not going to collapse if you have these intervals between meals. If you don't turn on mTOR, your immunity is not going to function properly because you proliferate your, your, your thymocytes and your, your T cells. Your whole immune system, rapamycin is an immune suppressant. Immune suppressant, right. Yeah, because you're shutting down mTOR. All toxins shut down mTOR. Mm-hmm. Because you can't tra- transcribe in the presence of a toxin, or you're going to f- proliferate that that toxin is going to invade all the new tissues you're making. So proliferation in mTOR, and mTOR isn't the whole thing, by the way. You stimulate mTOR through mechanical stress. When you when you're when you're consuming damaged proteins inside your cell, mTOR is being signaled. Why is that the case? Well, because those pro- those amino acids are now available, and you have to have that because if you don't, you don't you, the innate immune the innate stress response can't be activated. Gene transcription changes when you when you're under a stress. First of all, because you don't want to make proteins in a stressful situation. Second of all, you have to encode other genes to mount the stress response. And mTOR is doing that because it's getting the amino acids that are coming from the uh, proteostasis process. So if, if they want to chronically turn down the mTOR, they're going to they're waste away. You need IGF-1 in the, to rescue neurons that are struggling and, and stressed. You make IGF-1 locally. Not, they're confusing systemic IGF that is in the serum, in the blood. Right. From the local, there's local signaling and there's global signaling in some sense. And in the circulation, you're getting your global signals, but in the in the muscle or in the brain, when you activate, when you when you, when you exercise your muscles, you actually create local IGF one that doesn't necessarily go out into the bloodstream. I have very low serum IGF-1, but I have lots of muscle in it because I make it locally. <laughs> I had an Olympic doctor who looked at me and said, you can't have that kind of muscle and have such low IGF-1. And I said, well, I, I make it locally. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's used to seeing yeah, yeah. professional wrestlers and so forth. They were stoking up on insulin. And 
of <laughs> such things, right? Well, it's kind of like all the uh, all the hipsters in San Francisco, where they say, "Think globally, buy locally." Well, so you're thinking globally and making your IGF <laughs> locally. I make I make it locally, but you know what? A muscle contraction will will turn on AKT, and and so you're not coming through the insulin pathway, but the second half of it, you're rescuing. AKT is a survival hormone, a survival protein. They're, they're thinking about the insulin pathway exclusively, but you've got other factors down there. There's some wonderful work done by uh, Japanese Aizumura and uh, Akasaki and others who show that if you can overexpress AKT in the muscle, that's, that's protein kinase B also or whatever it is, yeah. um, it'll heal your liver. So exercise your muscles and heal your liver. And how do you do that? You ex- express AKT in the fast-twitch muscle fibers. So in those studies, were these researchers using a high-intensity weightlifting protocol? No, they were merely engineering the genes in, the, in a mouse to overexpress AKT in the fast-twitch fibers. Mm-hmm. Profoundly effective profoundly effective you can't read that our study and a series of studies by this group azumura and uh, you can't read that without saying i want all the fast switch fibers i can have they're not only disposing glucose they're taking the glucose disposal burden off the liver right and off the brain so these insulin-like peptides that are signaling in the brain too often you're you're turning Turning that down because the, you're taking the glucose disposal burden off the other cells. And it's, therefore, you're reducing insulin signaling in those cells. And it turns out that when you contract muscle, you make this uh, 4-BEPE or something like that, which interrupts trans- transcription. What you want to do is you want to have... You don't want to be transcribing new proteins in your brain when it's not time to do so. You want to be improving the quality of the, of the neurons. So if you, if you exercise, you reduce transcription in other cells because this particular protein, it binds to mTOR and keeps it from initiating transcription, the, the, the things that mTOR does. mTOR is overrated anyway. It's, um, it's, the, it's the ribosome that really matters. Please say more. <laughs> Tell us more about the ribosome. And, well, the ribosome is... Let's, let's, uh, yeah, if you could make it as... Uh, start, start at the basics. Yeah, okay, well... And I could blame that on my audience and say, for those who don't know, but I would, like, I would actually like to educate myself. Well, when you're going to make a new protein, the messenger RNA comes out. It's a string. The ribosome is this little bead-like structure that runs across the, the string, and it's, it's charged with amino acids. It reads the signals on the uh, messenger RNA, and it transcribes these long strings of proteins. And then they go off, and, they, they're, and then they're folded and what have you. It's actually like a universal Turing machine, remember? Sure. Alan, Alan Turing. So you can you can make any computer if you just have a read-write head and a tape. That's what the ribosome is. It's the read-write head that runs along the tape and makes proteins. My neighbor at UCI was the world's leading expert on ribosomes. God, it's so complicated. It gives you a headache every time I've talked to him. So I finally came up with this idea. Well, it's a, tur- a universal Turing machine. 
It's going across the, the read tape is the messenger RNA. The write tape is the protein that is made is by, the, by the ribosome. Well, the ribosome, not only being very complicated, it's very adaptive in how, what, what it transcribes. So FOXA will change the transcription factors, so therefore change the messenger RNA. And the ribosome will run across there. And, and between those two, they're like any universal computer is, is inheriting what they can do. So you change the transcription factor, you wrinkle up the DNA a little bit and, and expose other areas for transcription. And the ribosome is what is the, the coding factor that handles the integrated stress response. Protein transcription changes toward, instead of making new proteins, you're making these stress-responsive factors. And that's, that's, that's integral to the, to the survival process. That happens in, as, in response to resistance training? or Yes. Got it. Yes, it does. You'll make FOXO, you'll, you'll alter the transcription of your, your, your DNA, you'll make new messenger RNA, and the ribosome, if it set, senses stress in the cell, it'll begin transcribing these protective factors. Instead of like making all new proteins, it'll, it'll switch. Andrew Dillon has a wonderful paper on this. You should try to get it here. Uh, his group has uh, taken the... Where is he based? Where is this team? Berkeley. Oh, that's Berkeley, man. I'm in my backyard. He's right up there in the Bay Area. You may be at UC San Francisco. Mm-hmm. He has he has a quantitative biology group there. And so, in doing that, then in uh, shifting the transcription to what you were just describing to the uh, survival, yes, or, or or stress response, stress response factors, factors, right. we're bolstering that renewal program. Yes, the failure of which is implicated for what we call aging. Right? That's precisely right. And your immunity is brought up also during this. Uh, everybody, everybody who does anything in aging these days has finally agreed that basically it's a stress response. That That's what keeps you going. That, that maintains the cells, protects them. And uh, hormesis is like the one of, they want to leave it on all the time. Yeah. But they would exhaust you. Mm-hmm. You can't. You can't be poised for every possible kind of damage. Remember, the the world's full of maybe trillions of different kinds of damage that can happen to you, and you can't have a precisely tuned damage response to each threat. They have to be generalized, and they're generalized through certain transcription factors and through the way the ribosome makes proteins. So these generalized stress responses, they, they, they run across the immune system, they run across the stem cell system, they run across the uh, protein synthesis, across the ribosome. All these pathways intersect, and every one of them encodes some kind of stress response, cell protective pathway that's responding to a toxin, rapamycin, to uh, a bacteria, and the thing you don't want to have happen is when a bacteria is in there, you don't want to be transcribing proteins or the bacteria will get into that. You'll be making proteins for the bacteria. 
So you've got to be able to shut down transcription at the right time. But if you, you can't shut down transcription or mTOR completely, because then you can't make the defensive factors that are required. Mm -hmm. And there, this is where these micro RNAs seem to come in. Are you interested or not interested in, say, intermittent use of something like rapamycin? Do you find do you find that is that just trying to make a deal with the devil? Is that are there too many unknowns, or is is, is something like that interesting to you? To me, I I don't. It's a deal with the devil. Okay. I haven't even had a cold in forty years, so, so I I'm not going to mess with my immune system. So aside from the the let's say the the way that you eat and the spacing of your meals that we discussed and the resistance training, what other factors or behaviors, interventions, do you think have contributed to not being sick for decades? Stay away from people. <laughs> Stay away from people. <laughs> uh, but I couldn't. When I was teaching at the university, I had a class with 400 people in it, and yeah. half of them had just gotten back from China and were yeah. coughing and sneezing and so forth. <laughs> I was sort of the universal substitute teacher because everyone else got sick and they knew art wouldn't be sick they'd call me up to go teach their classes it's it's, it's spooky in a way yeah. so do you is it just uh, picking your picking your parents wisely or is it uh, is there is there more are there other factors there are there are other factors like you expose yourself to some cold mm -hmm. you stress your muscle you you uh you get plenty of good sleep very important you've got to and you've got to have these Foxo mTOR windows during your sleep. You gotta, you gotta live in one window or the other. There's a growth repair window, insulin window, and there's the Foxo window. Insulin tor versus Foxo. That's how I see my my life. And I'm going from one window to the other because it can't spell Foxo. F O X O. It's a forkhead box. Mm -hmm. Proteins, there are four human versions of it. Oxalate is probably the most important, but it's so important in its cognitive function. When you're starving, Foxo makes you want to move. Mm. So the Foxo window for you then would be part of good sleep, which is why you're not going to eat within mm -hmm. four or five hours right. of going to bed. You're going to you're going to spend the first window of sleep sort of rebuilding tissues. Second window of sleep, you're into the starved star foxo mode, and you're also altering your synapses. There's an interesting new gene that's called Homer. <laughs> <laughs> it comes, it floods into your brain it, when your excitatory fact, uh, signaling is depressed. Not much glutamate in the neuron. So Homer comes in, and it shrinks your synapses. <laughs> It's very appropriately named. That's hilarious. It is hilarious. And it's proportional <laughs> shrinking. In other words, you're going to say 10%. Each synapse is going to shrink by 10%. The biggest synapses are the most active ones. That's where post-traumatic stress lives. So if you can shrink those, they have to be stable. But if you keep rehearsing that same synapse constantly, it's going to grow in, in strength. And people who reverberate thoughts in their mind or ruminate a lot, they get, they get depressed because of those circuits, according to Jail Edelman, that's neural Darwinism. 
this neural Darwinism. Neural Darwinism. Darwin. There's Darwinian competition going on inside your cells so, everywhere. So for those people listening who do ruminate and uh, perseverate, that's another good word, uh-huh. constantly and yeah. get depressed, what what advice might you give them? Starve and exercise. Starve and exercise. <laughs> now the the. I, you know what? You, you, you seem like you have more to say, so I'll leave. Please continue. Well, starve, starve and exercise, but do something that's totally different so that you you set up neural circuits that compete with the ones that are ruminating and building and, and strengthening your, in your brain. The, the starvation part of it is to eat up some, these, some of these dif- dysfunctional synapses. My saying is for every damaged molecule, there's a damaged thought. And you're a, a, a de- depressed brain or a brain that is, um, you know, has post-traumatic stress, those are injured neurons inside the brain and you just need to get rid of the dysfunctional molecules that are causing those neurons to malfunction. So I guess, yeah, I mean, if, I, of course, I mean, it seems self-evident, but it, for right. those people, it goes it goes both ways, right? I mean, for every damaged thought, there's a damaged molecule. So if you're yes. thinking about, mm-hmm. rather than trying to think your way out of that problem, uh, heal the brain first. Heal, heal first. Heal the, heal the brain, and you heal it with neurotropic factors. Out, be outside. Um, new thoughts, new new patterns of behavior. How would you feed? I know this sounds silly to to ask, but how would you feed those new thoughts? Yeah. If a, if a loved one of yours was was getting depressed and exhibiting these symptoms, what would you prescribe to them? Well, you know, when my first wife was in was declining from a host of other things, I'd take her walking as much as I could. Mm-hmm. I would tell her bad jokes. <laughs> <laughs> it changed her surroundings. You know, the typical things that people have to do. Being outside is enormously uh, effective. They're, they're stimuli you can't even relate to, you, you, but you perceive them. Mm-hmm. And your unconscious brain is what's going to heal you first. And the unconscious brain is more healthy when it's exposed to nature and uh, happy people and children and dogs. <laughs> well, our, you know, our, our friend Naval, I think it's, I'm thinking I'm getting this attribution right, but he said the, the first... The first uh, first rule of uh, conflict resolution or minimizing conflict is to not spend a lot of time around people who are constantly in conflict. <laughs> <laughs> thought that was thought that was a good rule. Well, our politics is exposed to that, so turn off the news. Yeah. Don't, watch, don't watch the news. <laughs> you you mentioned in passing cold exposure, so this is something that I've found to be uh, tremendously uh, effective in mood elevation. Uh, among other things, but how do you how do you expose yourself to cold? Well, I walk the dogs early in the morning with almost no jacket or anything. Just just go out and get nice and chilly with them. Cold showers. And cool just to pool. be clear, where do you live now? Oh, Southern Utah. So it's not as cold. It's, it's no longer UCLA around campus. <laughs> no, no, it's not. <laughs> but even even uh, if you live in a, a desert like climate, it's cool in the morning. Sure, quite cool in the morning. Uh, I keep the pool cold. I don't heat the pool much. Uh, and I take cool showers. I don't try to shock myself. What, so you, I know this is, may seem like a non sequitur, which is most of my brain, but uh, we were talking about what you'd taught uh, Nassim 
as it related to exercise. Mm. Are there anything, any, any particular things that you've uh, learned from him or, or, and that could be what you used his book to illustrate in your class or anything else? Oh, sure. I mean, he, first of all, he, he's a marvelous writer. He tells stories in a way I can never tell. Uh, fat Tony. <laughs> yeah, Fat Tony, right? <laughs> he creates marvelous characters that embody the kind of uh, thing he wants to ridicule or 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 or, 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 or point out as, you know, savvy. He likes street smarts like I do. We both like math smarts too. I mean, actually, he went to the Courant Institute. You know, he's a very well-trained mathematician, far better than I. I guess... We all need a black swan hunting device is, is some, in some sense. I, I tried to create a financial device. I had a crook for a partner who was too, too dumb to be able to take this anywhere. But <laughs> I've, I've figured out ways of using kurtosis to, to finance uh, pharmaceuticals. Could you define kurtosis, please, and spell that? It's a me. measure of the, of the odd shape of the distribution. It's highly peaked and skewed off to the right or something. It looks very non-normal. Mm -hmm. does, does not resemble a, a bell curve. No, but it's a thing of beauty because mm -hmm. it, it's where life lives. That's where life is in, in that kind of... Uh, they're fractal-type distributions. It's like a Pareto distribution, and then they drop down mm -hmm. uh, at, at, the, uh, at the minimum. Um, so you developed that for... Uh, Pharmaceutical development, you said? Yes, yes, I had because the the, I, the last talk I gave at Harvard was between what compared the movies to pharmaceuticals, and it turned out that they were the same kind of statistical distributions. Leptokurtani. It sounds like something you should gargle for, but <laughs> <laughs> it's actually a thing of beauty. It's uh, skewed and biased to the right, and with. Uh, a very long, heavy tail. Heavy tail being, because every tail is long in a sense, but they become very thin. It has a lot of probability out there. That's, um, that's true of a power law distribution, Pareto distribution, and so forth. So it turns out pharmaceuticals that way, because a few pharmaceuticals sell billions and billions and billions of dollars, or like $12 billion a year. Most pharmaceuticals sell about half a million or a billion, maybe at most. It's the big outliers that dominate the industry and in revenues. So, using that skew, you can design a swap like instrument that uses the upper tail to pay the lower tail. Mm -hmm. And it, if you if you divide it correctly, you have a very favorable kind of gamble. So his uh, black would would. Uh Taleb's black swan hunting device then be derivatives training? Would that be how, or, or would it be something well, in addition to that? Actually, you're the one to talk about that because you're the guy who's, who's found all the black swans. <laughs> With the startups, yeah. I mean, the, that's that's certainly, my, well, I mean, the way I've, we're, we're going to maybe get off the reservation here for a second, but the way I've uh, thought about that is because I, I do not have the mathematical uh, or modeling background of of you, nor uh, Nassim or anybody else. Uh, I, it's not a funny story. It's kind of a tragic story. But tenth grade, my brother and I had two different math teachers. I had a math teacher who was very caustic, um, 
really had a chip on her shoulder and uh, berated students. Sounds like Nassim. <laughs> <laughs> well, he had a different response. I think Nassim is more pugnacious than I am. So he, so, so he showed his teacher. Uh, I decided to choose my college based on lack of math requirement. My brother had a fantastic teacher. He now has a PhD in statistics. Oh, uh, isn't that something? Yeah. There, there's, a, there's an extreme event right there. Yeah. It's a little mo- a small event, but it really changed the course. Yeah, it, uh, it, it completely changed the course of my life. And therefore, in my case, when I remember having a conversation with a hedge fund manager, and there, there are plenty of bad hedge fund managers out there, and I don't think they go by that name anymore, but there are some very, very brilliant people in the game. And I spoke with one, and I'm not going to get this totally right and, uh, and uh, do it justice, but he said, you can have a, there are a number of different advantages you can have, and you need to have at least one. And he said, you can have an informational advantage. Yes. You could have an analytical advantage. Mm-hmm. You could have a, uh, say, uh, behavioral advantage, uh, meaning if you're someone like a... There are plenty of people who try to imitate, say, Buffett, but they emotionally react to the market differently than a Buffett yeah. or a Munger, sure. and so on and so forth. And there are many of these. And what I realized was, given my sets of strengths and weaknesses where I could capitalize was in the informational advantage by mm-hmm. placing myself in the center of the switchbox in Silicon Valley. So that became my way of hunting for black swans. Fantastic. If you can handle the information load, it's coming through there. Well, well, you know what, what was so odd about it in a sense or counterintuitive for a lot of people I described this to. And, and uh, Nassim actually informed my thinking a lot on this because, and I'm again, not going to do his description justice, but thinking in a barbell fashion where I have the vast majority of my assets and investments are cash or cash-like equivalents. And then I have Mm -hmm. this smaller portion that is speculative, but uh, very asymmetrical returns. Mm -hmm. if, if, If I can think through basic portfolio management properly. And what I realized for myself is that I have an emotional disadvantage when it comes to publicly traded anything. I I respond very poorly to uh, compulsively, despite knowing it's not in my best interest, looking at watching people freak out and the sky is falling. And then I become chicken little and I sell at the worst time. (laughs) So what's, what's fantastic about startups for me, and I do not recommend this to anyone who does not have a, a significant advantage as I did, that I would do all of my homework, make a decision, invest, and then I couldn't sell. It was a liquid. And that turned out to be a very good thing. I was locked in. How so about I, that? Yeah. So I had to do all of my homework on the front end. Yeah. And then uh, there was no ticker tape for me to watch, no charts for me to watch, really. And uh, it, it's just uh, worked out fantastically. <laughs> I had a professor who was long in sugar when the Castro revolution hit. <laughs> he finally said, I can't take it anymore. I got to, I got to clear my position. <laughs> oh man. It's, uh, couldn't get any work done. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's, I'm really, really, really bad at, uh, anything that I can watch moving up and down. So I need to address that in my own life in a lot of ways. But so we were, we we're talking about, uh, well, for instance, I mean, talking about the the sugar position, and I remember asking a friend of mine who's a very good investor about liquidating certain positions or not, and he said, "Well, I think you should just look." And I was I was asking him for certain dollar ranges, how he runs the math, and he said, "I just sell down to sleep uh, sleep at night level." <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly it. Yeah. So selling yeah. to sleep at night levels, yeah. and uh, you mentioned getting good sleep. What are th- what are things that you do? 
or don't do to help ensure good sleep for yourself? Well, I've, here's probably the only supplement I take. I do take some melatonin. Melatonin. Mm -hmm. And do you take that on a daily basis? Sometimes, uh, but every, not, it's like I didn't bring any with me on the trip or right. so forth. I don't do anything regularly. But um, melatonin is much more than just uh, a sleep aid. It's, uh, it, it's found in plants. It's a resistance, uh, stress-resistant uh, protein. It does have powerful antioxidant properties, but you need oxidants too. Ox ox oxidative molecules are signaling molecules as well, but you need a proper balance of signaling versus chronically signaling oxidative molecules. But there's some other direct, it's, uh, I think it stimulates autophagy in the brain or some of these more fundamental processes that uh, maybe it brings out Homer. <laughs> <laughs> out of his cave. And are you, are you, how, how do you think about dosing? Is this like a one milligram, a three milligram? Do you have any idea? Um, five. Five. Sometimes 10. Wow. Okay. So that's a dose that I would use if I flew to Hong Kong to correct my sleep cycle. Sure you would. Yeah. yeah. You would. I, and it would work, but I don't do it for sleep. I do it for the other things it does. Got it. And do you worry at all? And this, this has been, uh, so there are certain things you, you are not terribly interested in, like rapamycin. Do you worry at all? And uh, this is the question that came to mind. I haven't asked him directly, but Dom, uh, who we know, Dominic D'Agostino, also uses melatonin on a very, very regular basis. Do you worry about any type of negative feedback loop or tolerance development or side effects from chronic use of melatonin? A lot of people do, and I maybe I did it one time when I didn't know enough about it, but actually it's not. You're not going to... You know, shut down the pineal gland uh, from making melatonin because you're because you're not really stimulating it to make it in the first place. You're not you're you're thinking in terms of a homeostatic balance of melatonin. Mm -hmm. I'm not. I'm thinking about it as a surge that's bringing on protective pathways. I think it'd be in a completely different way. And I don't even take it to sleep. I take it to brawl the other. Yeah, right. keep my brain to summon Homer. So actually everything I think of, I think in terms of those protective pathways, immunity, restore, restoration pathways, and it, it, the, the, whole, the whole knowledge that I thought I had before is sort of out the window. You think in terms of these molecular pathways. So let's, I'd like to explore that a little bit. And this is going to, I'm sure uncover a, a fairly deep level of ignorance on my part. But if, if we're thinking about, I know very little about melatonin, uh, but I have taken it in the past. If, if we're looking at, say, the, how, how does production, well, I'm trying to frame this. If I think of the, the uh, HPTA, like the, the, hypo, the hypothalamus uh, pituitary testosterone axis, and the ways that that can be disrupted if you supplement with, say, mm -hmm. testosterone or... Uh, luteinizing hormone, which I guess would be HCG when you're injecting it or taking it some other form, even if, say, testosterone or growth hormone, for that matter, are released in surges, it's not, not continual, right. uh, much like melatonin, um, why wouldn't regular consumption of melatonin cause uh, some type of, of mal malfunction? I just don't know if it's one thing in a, in a large stream of, of other elements that I don't know about. I don't have the answer to that either. It's... Okay. Uh... First of all, you're positing that there's a feedback 
Like no, I am, and I don't. Oh, That's okay. no. I'm just. Fine. I'm not even positing. I'm. Right. I'm just asking. Yeah. So I would. I wouldn't necessarily posit that feedback uh, pathway to begin with, because I don't think it's a homeostatic uh, balance there. I don't think it's that the body attempts to maintain pulses or or a, a balance of melatonin. I think it's you actually make it during the day too. It's not. It's not the sleep hormone. It's a defensive hormone. I mean, it's in plants. Plants don't don't have to get their rest or sleep. <laughs> They're not moving around all that much. Uh, it's it's an ancient ancient hormone. It's evolutionarily conserved across almost all species. And uh, I used to know a lot about it. I haven't thought about it in, in a while. So you caught me uh, short short of knowledge. Well, uh, maybe this is a a good place to talk about the the limits. Of, of human knowledge. Yeah. Uh, and uh, for instance, in reading uh, the black swan, <laughs> Nassim talks about epistemological arrogance a fair amount. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I think uh, just to give people an example of that, just to bring it down uh, to a more easily understood level, I, I, a very good friend of mine, well, a lot of doctors say this, any good doctor will generally say in you know, 50% of what we know is wrong. We just don't know which 50%. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's it's so very true. (laughs) So how do you, how do you think about human knowledge, what we can know versus what we can't know? Uh, and then this very broad question, but that that was one of the topics that uh, Naval recommended bouncing around in this conversation. So, uh, I, and uh, this is something that has caused me to go from taking a lot of supplements to taking fewer supplements, for instance, because there's so many historical case studies of <sighs> carrots are good for us. We think they improve eyesight. We attribute it to beta carotene. Then we start taking mega doses of beta carotene. Oops. Mm-hmm. Turns out there's a lot more to the story. Now we've created all of these yeah. unanticipated side effects. Yeah. I think even if you look at a static diagram of something like the M4 pathway, my gosh, it's so complicated. And then you realize and all they all have to be in the right sequence too, these molecules. You have to move at the right speed and have the right doses and so forth. You'll never be able to figure that out. So what you have to do is you have to be an experimentalist, maybe maybe on yourself like you and I do. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe on your on your child or on your dog <laughs> on Molly. <laughs> I actually had to experiment on my child. I didn't like to, but I had to because the doctors were killing him. So I don't want to get into that too much, but you have to be willing to test hypotheses. Why why not just admit that nature knows a lot more than we do, and try to live a simple, clean, decent life and eat good food. And go hungry now and then, mimic mimic those patterns. There's an air correction mechanism inside each one of us. If you err in terms of, for example, you make you make some bad cells, some bad proteins, or your, some of your stem cells go bad, nature's down there cleaning it up because the other stem cells will kill it. It'll consume it or it'll shove it out of the niche, just like eagles get shoved out of, you know, nestlings get shoved out of the niche. There's competition going on inside your body constantly. And if you use competition to weed out the weak and the faulty and let the strong survive. So you really, your ideas are competing 
also. Everything is a, is a question of variety, pruning, competition, pruning things. Like I said, God said, I, I got these different species I'll send out. Let's, let's see which one, which one is best, which one gets through the Ice Age. Um, that's how you do it. And you, your body is constantly pruning your thoughts, your motivations, your rewards. And sleep is the way you, you clean all that up. <laughs> so uh, I, I want to shift gears a little bit. I'll just ask uh, some of what my audience knows as rapid-fire questions. Your answers don't need to be rapid. But uh, just as we come to sort of the, the tail end of our chat, what books have you gifted most to other people or recommended most to other people? Are there any particular that come to mind? Well, I mean, I gave all my library books to the, the local college library, and they were full of uh, books. Um, not philosophy. I've thrown my philosophy books away. Why is that? <laughs> the, the pointless, empty, empty questions for the most part. They're not testable hypotheses. Got it. Yeah. I've been generous with my thoughts more than I have with my, my books in the sense I've gifted the bulk of my knowledge that I developed on my webpage and in my first essay on evolutionary fitness and the knowledge I put out there about the paleo lifestyle, I think, uh, was a real gift I gave to a, a lot of people who've carried on and, and developed it further. And I, I wasn't the originator, but Lauren and I were both sort of thinking about, Lauren Cordain and I were thinking about these things simultaneously. I kept telling don't jog, Lauren. Don't jog. Yeah. I think he probably still does. And he, I'm sure he's quite healthy still. Um, so that's 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 the primary gift. And I, I gifted many dissertation topics to graduate students. I, I ran more graduate students at the universities where I work than anyone else in the department. The students were drawn drawn to me, but my ideas were kind of complicated. And so there was not necessarily a good dissertation there in the, in the usual mm -hmm. sense. <laughs> <laughs> good news. You have me as an advisor, bad news. <laughs> it's a hard topic. <laughs> yeah. Are there any particular books that have, uh, very heavily influenced you or books? That, what, what are books that you've, uh, reread? If any come to mind, I actually read the journal literature. I don't read very many books anymore. Scientific literature. Mm -hmm. Where do you go hunting for literature, and how do you decide what to read? Um, I choose a topic, and I, I I look very broadly at the topic from a mathematical point of view, from a biological point of view, which is what all my reading now. I must have a, my bibliography is getting close to eight thousand entries in in this aging literature. And what a goofy literature some of it is. You know, I mean, it's it, there's some fantastic articles there, and then there's just a lot of fluff and redoing and reviews. And and sometimes the article will, the abstract of the article won't be as long as a listing of authors. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's really a weird feel. It's just they, a party party review. <laughs> yeah. They, they figured out how to get citations. <laughs> Economists never, uh, we, we, we don't co-author that much. And 
Yeah, maybe one or two co-authors at the most. <laughs> well, I mean, if uh, humans respond to incentives, right? So, <laughs> gotta, 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 Indeed. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I uh, is that mostly PubMed? What sources do you like to to use? Are you subscribing to particular journals themselves? No, I'm still a prof- professor emeritus, so I have access to the whole just about Le- all the world's publications. Yeah, yeah, PubMed. Don't get into reading about diets. It's an endless literature, and it's pretty lousy. What are in the in the fields uh, or field of aging longevity? Although I feel like that word's kind of tainted, but uh, yeah, it is. Yeah, life extension. I, that one too. I don't even know what to what to call it. But uh, what are the current wild goose chases, in your opinion, or or areas that are? Okay. Potential dead ends or things that are just getting way overblown in your mind. I do think these uh, attempts to manipulate mTOR are are uh, kind of pointless. If you chronically shut down mTOR, you're going to shrink to nothing. You're not going to make new proteins. It's Windows. You got to have uh, you got to have these switches. The most fruitful papers that I read. Talk about a pathway that crosses another one, and they have switches. You turn them on and off. You age in this window. You don't age in that window. It's one way to look at it. Yeah, yeah, that's a helpful way to look at it. Yeah. So you just want to have the not aging. <laughs> yeah, you want to be defending or renewing, but most people in today's life are renewing on a continuous basis, and so they're misfolding proteins and they're damaging their cells and building fat in tissues where it doesn't belong, and and so forth. So I think all these attempts to stall mTOR are uh, really kind of weird. You, you, you want to stall it. If you don't want to over-proliferate, but you actually want to be capable of proliferating when it's essential because when you want to renew a cell or rebuild, mm-hmm. rebuild tissues, you, uh, you have to be able to do that. Bodybuilding and the whole, the whole notion of regularity and chronic are, are totally wrong. You've got to have switches windows and you go back and forth you alternate you got to be alternating states is the way to think about things and the problem is some of the people have looked at uh, for example Cynthia Kenyon's work on the worms and so forth the foxo pathway there are lots of residual pathways from that are that are fox four kid box genes that that were part of the development process that are now resident in the cells and can respond and and defend and repair a cell. For example, if you work out, you you trigger FOXP and FOXM proteins in your your brain. And by workout, you mean sprint or uh, resistance training? Yeah, you you can jog if you want to, if you want to, you know, kill some of your stem cells. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, No, you... you got to have variety. You got to do all of these things. So I think the idea of switch, switches in windows is going to come. And systemic signaling is the hottest new thing in in aging research, which makes a lot of sense. That is signaling at a distance. I think the stem cell pathways are going to turn out to be just crucial and very very important. And if, again, mTOR is sort of misplaced because we got we got so many sick people in the world. It's bad to be average now in today's world. It's really bad. I, uh, I've never had average-looking tests in, you know, in my blood work or anything else, and uh, average is... Uh, average is dangerous these days. Yeah. 
I, you mentioned, uh, so dangerous reminded me of one thing that you said in passing, and I wanted to just unpack it. It may, it may not uh, be a long story, but you, you said, I've never been injured in all these decades of weight training, except for one instance that I can remember. What was the one instance? What happened? Oh, man, it was just this weird guy in the gym. <laughs> there are a lot of those. Yeah, yeah, yeah I was going to say, yeah. Um, he's an old, he was a fireman, and he worked out on at the gym and he used to do these behind the neck presses. Oh, right. With a barbell. Yeah. With a barbell. So he's using some weight and I said, well, that's nothing. I wasn't warmed up or anything. I hopped on. I said, well, that's easy. And I, and I did it and I pulled a muscle in my neck and it hurt for three months. (laughs) (laughs) What are, what are things that you do to help minimize the likelihood of injury whether it's some type of warm up before you go into your uh, uh, your your negative work or otherwise, well, first thing I don't warm up. You don't warm up, no. Like okay. Mike Menser used to do. Got it. Go sure. in and start working out. Now, when I was, so you go straight to your first work set, whatever that might be. Yeah, mm-hmm. but it's usually sort of mild, and I may start with my so-called famous hierarchical sets: mm-hmm. a lightweight, fifteen reps; a heavier weight, eight reps. A heavier weight, yet four reps. You're going right up the fiber hierarchy. Slow, intermediate, fast switch. Now you're warm. You you warm up more more rapidly if you do something that's reasonably intense. And then the rest of the workout, you're warm. I work out early in the morning when it's cold, or I used to. And now, now, now that I don't have a job anymore, I'm retired, I work out at 11. And, and every every time I go there, I see the same guy. He's an ex bodybuilder. You can tell he looks good. He's still, and he's there for hours, and I'm in and out. I don't know who looks better. I think I do, but that's, I'm leaner. He's a more bodybuilding looking looking guy, and they don't they don't look good when they're not flexed. They don't look good. Let's face it. <laughs> you mean you don't like like the second trimester? Abdominal <laughs> No, no. And uh, just for all the bodybuilders in the audience, it's not all of you, but let's be honest. If we look at some of the competitors when they're not flexed. Oh, I'll oh say. boy. How long, you know, is it a boy or a girl? Uh, that's wanna... right. That, that's exactly right. <laughs> so I really, I'm, I'm there for a little adventure, uh, for a little bit of intensity, not to get hurt. So if you have long muscles, you do a full range of motion, you're not going to get hurt. And you're also uh, generally, at least on the on the negatives, following a, a, a slow cadence, right? I mean, you're you're you might be raising it quickly, but you're lowering it entirely under control. Control right? entirely under control, but down to a full stretch. Right. I'm thinking, I'm thinking Titan Spring. Right. There's a spring down there, and so even if I'm doing positive exercises, I will lower and I'll come and I do a little. Not not a bounce because full stop bounces are d- destructive, but the little stretch bounce. Right. If you were to go back to teaching, and you were to teach a freshman undergrad, actually it could be a freshman or a senior seminar. So it's just a, if say fifteen to forty students, something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you only have them once a week. Let's say you have, let's say you have them once a week for three hours, one semester. What would you what would you teach them? The economics of uncertainty. Economics. That's of uncertainty. the last class I developed there at UCI, and I taught. And they love they love the class. 
Economics of extreme events is really what it was. Not uncertainly the way it's taught by utility theory and all this nice utility maximization and expected this and expected that. It's all nonsense. It would, it would be the economics of extreme events. If someone wanted to, since you're probably not going to teach that class anytime soon, uh, is if somebody wanted to explore that for themselves, mm-hmm. how would they self-educate? Any, rec- any starting points that you would recommend? My class notes are somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> we, should, we should definitely somehow um, crowd, crowdfund getting those. Well, I would, I would start with my movie book. Mm-hmm. What was the title of that? Hollywood, Hollywood Economics. It covers uh, extreme events uh, fairly, fairly thoroughly. In fact, a lot of students looked at that. I had other, I had other readings as well. Or you could look at uh, climate science and look at the extreme climate vari- extremes of climate fire variation, and what happens. You could look at the economics of storms and and floods, floodplain analysis. So I, I would look at uh, nature. If if you were to pick one of Nassim's books to start with, would mm-hmm. would you would you choose Fooled by Randomness or would it be one of the others? I think students learn more from Fooled by Randomness. The Black Swan is marvelous uh, as well. Skin in the Game is probably going to be a terrific book too because you got to have skin in the game. Everybody knows that, but they always ignore it. Um, <laughs> if you want to do a Jap- uh, a Chinese fun, you got to put skin in with him. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Thirty <laughs> percent. Oh, they want they want incentives a lot. <laughs> they won't just cut your knuckles off. You know, it's just uh, <laughs> more at stake. <laughs> uh, I so the the economics of extreme events. Uh, if you could put anything on a billboard, you have a gigantic billboard, and you can put a short message, a word, a couple of words, sentence, whatever, to get out to millions of people. What would that message be? or whatever you would put on the billboard. could be anything. Well, I used to end my, my principles of economics teaching the, the importance of freedom and arbitrage. Arbitrage keeps you from being stupid because you compare the price of this relative to other equivalents or close substitutes and so forth. If you, do, if you talk mathematically about pricing, you lose the anchoring from the arbitrage principle. So I always taught arbitrage. Uh, arbitrage. Could you, ex- could you uh, explain that maybe through an example? I would just love to hear. Yeah, well, well, buy low in, in, and sell high, but you trade, you have to trade different alternatives. For example, nature abhors a vacuum and economics abhors an arbitrage opportunity. Arbitrage opportunities get eliminated. Is that, okay, got it. Is that just efficient? Well, not efficient yeah, market it's theory. Like a, it's a sensible way of looking at efficient markets. Mm-hmm. The best predictor of tomorrow's price of something is today's price because that leaves no arbitrage opportunity. Right. If you knew the price is going up tomorrow, it would go up today. You know, that, that right. kind of thinking. Mm-hmm. You think about opportunities, but you think in terms of the arbitrage limits that are there. So I taught, I taught general equilibrium theory as arbitrage also. It wasn't too successful. <laughs> it wasn't. It wasn't appreciated. But um, this is how Malinvold taught uh, general equilibrium theory. Also, is the presence of arbitrage. So, would you just put understand arbitrage? Would that be the message? Oh, the, the billboard. Yeah. 
Um, no, that, it would be a Freedom Counts. Freedom Counts. Yeah. Freedom Matters. And is that mostly in reference to markets, or is, is it... Freedom of contract, freedom of arbitrage, mm-hmm. freedom of entry, freedom of exit. People don't have to be forced to do things. They can exit. They can, they can participate. Freedom counts. Yeah. I like that. Uh, and your well, workouts, too. <laughs> <laughs> lift heavy things. Yeah, yeah, lift heavy things. Freedom counts. <laughs> uh, well, Art, we could talk for hours and hours and hours, and uh, I know we're going to go go uh, probably grab a bite to eat at at some point after this. But is there uh, is there anything? And I'm going to ask you after this where people can learn more about you, what you would like them to uh, check out, and certainly that'll all go in the show notes. But is is there any uh, are any parting words or suggestions or asks of my audience something they should test, something they should consider, anything? That you'd like people to, to well, get ready to for my for my book when it comes out on on aging. Mm-hmm. It's a field that's full of a lot of charlatans. There's some good science, and there's some there is no such thing as successful aging because aging is damage. <laughs> so you can't be successful if you're being damaged. And do you have a do you have a, a set timeline for that, or a, a, a titles people should look out for, or should we just say? Prime yourselves; it's coming, and we will let you know when it comes out. Yeah, ch- just check my Facebook page. That's that's my. La- I've given up my blog. It wasn't worth the time and effort. I did help a lot of people, but I'm past that now. <laughs> I, I I've taken up this as a really as a scientific quest because one, like I said, I'm experienced. Coming uh, coming up on aging, uh, on eighty is. Um, you start thinking about, you know, when you pl- approach middle age, you start thinking about these things. <laughs> when you wait, so you're planning your planning your next eighty. The, 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 the possibility, the technology is is coming, and it is there right now and inside each person. And it's the protein quality control, cell quality control. Don't lose cells. Maintain them. Starve them within a while. That's good for them. So the, the technology, I am applying the technology, and I think I'm, um, I'm doing pretty well at it so far. I, I do plan to live another 40, 60 years. <laughs> I think you're doing pretty well, and your arms are bulging out of your shirt, which is long-sleeved. So I think things are going well. Uh, well, Art, thank you so much for the time. I really appreciate it. And uh, this, is, this has been a lot of fun. And uh, for everybody listening, as always, you can find links to everything that we've discussed to... Art's Facebook page and more at Facebook, not Facebook. Let's try that again at fourhourworkweek.com forward slash podcast or at tim.blog forward slash podcast. They both go to the same place and you will find show notes for this episode and every other episode. And until next time, thank you for listening. Hey guys, this is Tim again. Just a few more things before you take off. Number one, this is Five Bullet Friday. Do you want to get a short email from me? Would you enjoy getting a short email from me every Friday that provides a little morsel of fun before the weekend? And Five Bullet Friday is a very short email where I share the coolest things I've found or that I've been pondering over the week. That could include favorite new albums that I've discovered. It could include gizmos and gadgets and all sorts of weird shit that I've somehow dug up in the uh, the world of the esoteric as I do. It could include favorite articles that I've read and that I've shared with my close friends, for instance. And it's very short. It's just a little tiny bite 
of goodness before you head off for the weekend. So if you want to receive that, check it out. Just go to fourhourworkweek.com. That's fourhourworkweek.com, all spelled out, and just drop in your email, and you will get the very next one. And if you sign up, I hope you enjoy it. This episode is brought to you by Audible, which I've used for many, many years. I absolutely love audiobooks, and they are one of my favorite ways to pass the time when I travel. I'm on the road all the time, and Audible allows me to consume many more books than I possibly could otherwise. I have two audiobooks to recommend right off the bat. The first is perhaps my favorite audiobook of all time, and it's the only audiobook I've wanted to listen to twice in a row, The Graveyard Book by Neil Gaiman. It's amazing, and you will thank me. There are a few different versions. I like the version that Neil narrates himself. One of the most soothing voices of all time. The second book is Vagabonding by Rolf Potts, P-O-T-T-S, which had a huge impact on my life and formed the basis for a lot of what would later become the four-hour work week. So go to audible.com forward slash Tim and you can choose one of these two books or any of many, many other options. That could be books, magazines, and much more. As a listener of The Tim Ferriss Show, you can also access a free 30-day trial. Just go to audible.com forward slash Tim. You can't make more time, but you can make the most of it. So turn your travel or your commute into something more with a free trial at Audible. Go to audible.com forward slash Tim to start now and get your free 30-day trial. This podcast is brought to you by Four Sigmatic. I reached out to these Finnish folks young entrepreneurs, very talented, after a acrobat introduced me to one of their products, which is mushroom coffee. This specific one includes chaga and lion's mane, and it knocked my socks off. I highly recommend if you try it, you start with half a packet. It's very strong and lights you up like a Christmas tree in the best way possible. People are always asking me what I use for cognitive enhancement, and for right now, this is the answer. I try to force this on all of my house guests. It is a hell of a thing. If I have employees or people come over who are working on projects with me, I always try to feed it to them because I'm going to get the limitless effect (laughs) and get a lot more out of them. The first time I mentioned this product and Four Sigmatic on the podcast, their products sold out in less than a week, so you may want to check them out soon if you're listening to this. And the coffee tastes like coffee. It uh, takes just seconds to prepare with hot water and oddly enough only includes 40 milligrams of caffeine. So it has less than half of what you'd get in a regular cup of coffee. I don't get any jitters, acid reflux, or any stomach burn, any of that. It's very unusual and very, very cool. So if you don't like caffeine, they also offer very strong but caffeine-free mushroom elixirs, which I will sometimes have in the evening. I find chaga specifically to be very, very grounding and earthy. So that is another option. And I have a cupboard full of their products uh, at the moment, which is right around the corner of my kitchen. You can try something. You can try a sample pack, which is great also. Right now, by going to Four Sigmatic dot com forward slash Tim. That's four sigmatic F O U R S I G M A T I C dot com forward slash Tim and use the code Tim T I M to get 20% off of your first order. And they're not that expensive anyway. If you are in the experimental mindset, I do not think you'll be disappointed. So try them out. 